Just a quick content warning here at the beginning. This episode contains brief non-graphic discussion of suicide. Uh, that discussion starts around the 45-minute mark and concludes by the 50-minute mark. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, help is available 24-7. Call or text 988 or go online to 988lifeline.org. So. I mean, I'm hosting. I am taking the the power, and it's mine now. Hello, gentle listener, <laughs> and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. Uh, here on this show, wow, I, I decided to fly blind and not open the script, and I just, like, <laughs> this is how far I got. Anyway, we talk about <laughs> books, but not about scotch. Um, hi, Michael, say your name. Michael, that's my name. Michael. Don't I, don't I, wear I, it out. Michael. Why is why are you guys always wearing out Michael's name? Uh <laughs> Yeah, come on. Come on. Don't tread on me. Ooh, okay. Uh want to veer away <laughs> from that, that energy real quick. <laughs> um <laughs> So anyway, we are a very erudite podcast where we talk about books and do not form militias and rebellion. Nope. And... Nope. Nope. <laughs> Oh, absolutely no. not. Uh, these are statements Michael but is we're making. we're against everything British, right? Okay, mean? yes. That I'm fine with, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, Alright. Uh, yeah. It makes me tempted to bring up the, the TikTok I saw where uh, a, a lady was like, being interviewed clearly from England. She was like, the thing I hate about Americans is that they don't know anything. And then it like cuts to this, this guy... <laughs> Uh, who just fills his sink up with water and, like, takes his, like, twinings, twinnings, whatever that, you know, British tea is. Uh, mm. he, like, he's plugged the sink, so it's full of water, <laughs> and he just dumps the twinings box into the sink. <laughs> anyway, but, like... That... Yeah, but don't bring that up. Don't no, it would be wild up. for me to, like, spend this book podcast telling you about my TikToks that I've watched. Um, just describing the TikToks. Yeah, so I won't do <laughs> In it. In detail. It's like these TikToks where people, like, read tweets, and it's like, I can just read the... <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about that. Um, what we are talking about uh, is what scotch we're drinking. Is that the order we do it in? I think I, I think the scotch like comes that, first. Sure. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to say, Michael, yeah. before, we, before we open the scotch? Scotch, 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 wow, it's scotch, like, scotch, scotch, scotch. It's like a slightly more obnoxious transcription of my own inner monologue, so I guess we're on the same page there. <laughs> um, yes. Michael, the scotch we're drinking this time uh, comes in a pleasingly bright yellow box. It is Glenmorangie, the original. Um, I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly, which is wild because I think we've had at least three iterations now of Glenmorangie on this show. Um, I think you're correct. And I, neither of us has bothered to look up a pronunciation, or at least I haven't, and that's all we're uh, talking about. I No, I, I looked up a pronunciation. I thought you maybe did, and I was um, trying to from ignore that. From Blair Bowman, 
Uh, he he said it rhymes with orangey. Okay, Glenmorangie. Yeah, I think that's why I said it this way because I used to say Glenmorangie, and that sounds like a very Wisconsin boy mm. way to say it, more than like a Scottish it does. way. But that also brings up a, a point that I want to make. My box is orange. Oh, you gotta, you gotta. Here, can you move that into the frame a little more? I can't. Yeah. Um, yours is like redesigned so, from mine. So mine has the is like sort of the oh. You cannot see it against my background. Um, mine has totally wow. Vanished. Okay, <laughs> now you're vanished. Yeah, uh, to hold <laughs> it up against like my that. chest. This is the one that I've always, you know, seen in stores. It's like yellow. It's like an mm. orange yellow, but I'd still describe it as yellow. Has a Glenmorangie in, uh, you know, just kind of horizontally. The original. Uh, Michael's has like this postmodern, like orange colored, and it's like. Glenn, Mo, Rain, G, uh, sort of like in big letters down the front of the box. Um, so and I don't the the design of the box reminds me a little bit of uh, the design of uh, the Brucladi sure, yeah, boxes. Yeah, yeah. Like they they come in the, like the round tins, but like the lettering and stuff is very similar. I am gonna say I don't trust yours. Like. <laughs> It has changed, and, like, I, as a person, deeply distrust and hate change. Um, it Well, it's changed, but it also still claims to be the original. I mean, yeah, so it, I hope it still claims to be the original, created in Scotland since 1843, perfected by the 16 men of yes. Tain, uh, Highland single malt Scottish Scotch whiskey, aged 10 years. Just... Mine doesn't say anything Distilled about in those Scotland's men. tallest stills for a smooth, rounded whiskey. Quote, unequaled for purity, delicacy, and aroma, unquote. Unclear who they're quoting or, or to what purpose the tiny quote marks are there. But anyway, that's all the text from the front of the box. And if yours doesn't have that, I am going to have to say it's an imposter. No, um, it doesn't. On, on the back, mine says, 10 years aged in bourbon casks. The original is where all our whiskey-making adventures begin. Uh, and it gives some tasting notes that I'm going to ignore. Delicious by design, we craft our more delicate, fruity spirit and stills as tall as a giraffe. So tallest is as sure. tall as a giraffe to create more space for taste and aroma. Then we age our whiskey in bourbon casks where it absorbs all manner of delectable flavors for an award-winning kaleidoscope of taste. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll provisionally allow it. Let's say that. I'll... Uh... Well, I, I'll suffer I it on that. sufferance, um, if you'll forgive the repeated. I, I think perhaps we just have different iterations of the no, same No, I think thing. you're probably right. And also, I was going to admit at some point here, um, so we discussed like weeks ago that this was the scotch we were going to have for this podcast. I did forget to buy yep. a bottle of it until today, which meant that instead of going to like... <laughs> the um you know slightly bigger city liquor store that i buy a lot mm -hmm. of my stuff from i did go to my local grocery store which has what i would call a sort of um uh oh there was a word i was looking for and i can't remember it it's sort of like a like a i guess we have to have some scotch selection of scotch like perfunctory maybe it has a perfunctory <laughs> selection of scotch there you go um and i mean glenmorangie is is you know well known and well respected enough i was pretty sure they had that but like you know 
and and like the uh, hint of perfunctoriness was emphasized just now when I picked up this bottle to do this intro and found that the top was like dusty um, meaning that this has sat oh. on the shelf for a while um, clearly not a lot of scotch drinkers with any taste in my town um, so what what I'm saying in a very roundabout way is I suspect that you just uh, went somewhere where people with taste in scotch where they um get scotch and i did not so you got you know more uh more recent bottling more recent packaging probably of a uh, lenmorangi there was some, surely some a shorter anyway. way to say that but um if if you've listened to any episodes of this podcast uh you should really be over the idea that I will ever say anything the efficient way. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to pour some scotch. And slancha. Do we need to hear the rules? Uh, also, we need to hear the rules. <laughs> hey, Karen, can you read us the rules? Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. Thank you, Karen. Anyway, slancha again. <laughs> Lakayam. All right. So today we are discussing not any of the things we just discussed, um, but instead no. a book. Uh, the book is The Midnight Library by author Matt Haig. Uh, that's H-A-I-G. Mm -hmm. uh, I pronounced it the way a boy who was born and raised in Wisconsin would pronounce it. Um, and to be fair, <laughs> that's like a pretty common last name, even just in like, the specific part of Wisconsin that I'm from. It's usually not spelled quite the same way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this is to say that I have no idea if I'm pronouncing it anywhere close to the way that like this British man would himself pronounce it or would prefer it be pronounced. So, uh, Matt Hag, if you listen to this podcast, like this is the first of many things I will probably apologize to you for because you seem like a nice guy. But we're not going to apologize for what we said earlier about being against. That's correct. British, yeah, right? I mean, as a as a <laughs> dyed in the wool, actually American, but who claims his Irish heritage very strongly, like I cannot apologize for that sort of thing. Uh, really, it's a good thing that that like TikTok was the first digression I thought of instead of thinking to. Uh, bring up like the latest harry and megan thing and make some comments about the british monarchy because that would get me in trouble not only with i can only assume matt hag as well as our british audience but also with your wife and um of the three of those one of them is very scary um it's sarah (laughs) i'm scared of sarah i would not want to piss sarah off that's that's the that's the point i was making yeah that's that's the one anyway uh Mm -hmm. now i you know michael i don't know if you have any any thoughts i clearly don't because like based on all the things i've said so far um we're just kind of going the uh the dam of the dam of my stream of consciousness has been uh broken by saboteurs and it's just all coming out um that said Mm -hmm. Uh, my first thought when I was originally reading this book with, of course, knowing that it was going to be, uh, uh, brought to this podcast was to discuss Mm -hmm. multiverses, um, as sort of a table setting idea. Um, but Michael, what you, you sabotaged me, um, by having the extremely good idea to just do an entire episode about multiverses, uh, which I do have extremely good ideas all the time. Well, so. that's not what I said at all, but uh, you know, uh, do thank go you off. for admitting that it's. True. Um, that's also not what I said. Uh, anyway, we got I would say both our extremely bad multiverse jokes as well as like discussion of multiverses as a concept sort of out of the way in that episode um did we though i mean i was trying to sort of speak a certain truth into existence like if i said it maybe it would be true <laughs> maybe it would be true. um but uh well you've maybe spoken it into this existence but there is another where it's not true <laughs> So if you want to hear that joke a bunch of times and then some discussion of multiverses as a concept, go back an episode if you haven't already listened to it uh, and listen to our previous episode where we do talk about this concept. And like, I guess I'm just going to assume that everyone is kind of familiar with the idea of multiverses. Um, And again, if you're not like, even if you really, even if you don't want to like go back and listen to like if you skipped that episode for whatever reason um like if you want a real brief introduction like just go back to that episode click on uh the link to the article is the multiverse where originality goes to die and even read just like the first few paragraphs of that article because that really kind of lays it out so and also that's a good good place for it you know if you're um 
listening to this episode, uh, uh, having read the book, you should probably know about, you know, multiverses. Like, the book kind of explains it um, itself. So, Michael, unless you have anything that was, like, burning a hole in your in your consciousness to say about multiverses that you didn't think to say uh, in our previous episode, um, I'm going to move on um, from that. Not, no, not specifically about multiverses. Uh, I'll, I'll let you, you know, kind of take the reins here and start us off. I've got some, some thoughts of, of course, but um, you are, you are the captain of this ship. So. Um, well, uh, Nice of you to say that uh, any thoughts I ever have are always valid. Um, <laughs> see, see, it hurts when someone does it to you, doesn't it? Um, well, if that's what you choose to hear. I mean, in this universe it is. <laughs> I guess, I don't know, like, uh, I didn't... This book is very smooth to me. Like... It's a very smooth, like, um, so probably, probably just me saying that, you know, both to Michael and to the intelligent listener, you probably got a sense of what I mean by smooth and like, I probably don't need to elaborate, but, um, I did like, I'm thinking of it in a very specific sense that, uh, uh, my there's sort of become an in joke between me and my wife and some of our friends um uh that one our one friend lydia who her name means something to michael but probably not to a lot of other people um (laughs) uh that was a veiled insult to say she has no friends anyway um (laughs) she was like she she once said to me that she thinks i am always about half ruffled like that's my default state not fully ruffled always Mm. but at least half ruffled and then she turned to karen and said and you don't even have feathers um (laughs) and karen who was kind of like half you know she was i i don't think she had been drinking but like i think she was just like very tired and kind of punchy just kind of bursting out of her consciousness came the phrase yeah that's right you can't ruffle me i'm smooth like a dolphin um uh and i don't know if that makes any sense but like this book to me is very smooth like a dolphin like you know some books are kind of bursting out at you with like arguments they want to have with you things that they want you to uh to address you know some books can be very didactic that way like they have a thing that that they want you to get out of it um the, the books i tend to prefer aren't necessarily didactic that way. Like they're not trying to lead you down a parable or an allegory, but they're like, uh, they want you to think about something like, uh, Mm. among, you know, many books on this podcast that I think could, uh, uh, could be like that. Two that come to mind, very different ones are, um, uh, Jacques, the fatalist and, uh, by force alone, Lavi Tidhar's, uh, uh, sort of, post-2016 retrenchment of the the King Arthur uh, mythos. Um, In very different ways, those books both strike me as, like, books not written to go down smoothly, books written to sort of say, (laughs) here's an idea. 
I don't need you to, like, agree with me about this idea. I just need you to engage with this idea in this particular way. Um, and this book, and I don't, I don't mean to juxtapose it and say in the sense that it's, like, not intellectual or not playing with ideas or even not, like, presenting ideas or thought experiments, but, like, the way that it's presented is much smoother than that. It just, like, you could read yeah. this book all in one sitting and, like, the 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 mm -hmm. arc is very clean. The You know, in, in fiction writing, they sort of talk about um, an ideal, like, screenplay or, like, popular novel, like a, you know, sort of mainstream-style novel. You'll have an external story arc and an internal story arc. And they sort of reflect each other. So the external mm -hmm. story arc, of course, is like whatever journey the group goes on or whatever dragon you slay, literally or metaphorically. Right. And then the internal story arc follows that. Like if you're slaying a dragon externally, you're maybe going through an arc from being someone who seems like a coward to being someone who's very brave. Um, just mm -hmm. to put it in like the most simplistic of terms, I guess. In the Hobbit terms. Right, that too. Um yeah. Uh, and and like this this book is like very clean that way i would say um yeah almost deceptively so maybe but also like yeah it's like in the same way that the hobbit is simple um and yet has had you know generations of scholarship and and uh, uh scholarly writing and, and discussion and debate and can warrant that i think this book is very simple but um sure to, like i i want to i want to use the word simple in a way that doesn't necessarily have any of the connotations of like negativity or badness like simple right. can be good or it can be neutral um like i certainly don't mean it as an insult mm -hmm. um so i guess those are like right. my initial sort of round of thoughts on this book they're obviously very general mm -hmm. um Michael, I would like to throw it to you to either, and I'm going to give you two choices and only two choices. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. You can either respond to some or all of those thoughts, or you can mm -hmm. just introduce one of your thoughts that like you'd like to talk about. But those are your only two choices. Okay. Only two. All right. Well, I'm going to start by taking the first option, and we'll see if that doesn't lead into me choosing also the second option. I mean, so I, I might. Will. What I'm saying is have my cake and eat it, too. Mm. Um, but will you so, eat your cake and have it, too? I don't know. After I eat it, I mean, I will have it in my tummy. Um, and my wife will eat me. Yikes. Here, this is yours. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah's, Very interrupting. So Sarah's face said the same you thing that you give. my mouth did, if you know what I mean. Yep, yep. I'm going to have to edit um, that. This is a family podcast. So, yes, it is very smooth. And something that occurs to me about how smooth it is, it is that... I keep expecting Sarah to pop back into the frame with the same look on her face. Excuse me. Um, something that I think is interesting about this concept of how smooth it is um, and what makes it 
structurally deceptively smooth is the lack of chapter numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, so the way it's laid out, um, there are no chapter numbers. You start out there after the epigraph, two epigraphs there, there's a double epigraph. Then the, the heading of the, the chapter for, for lack of a better turn is a conversation about rain that goes on for two pages. And then you get kind of like a, a book break or a section break a part break into 19 years later. Right. And then the next chapter heading is the man at the door. And then that goes on for three pages and you get another one string theory. And it goes on like that. You have by and large, relatively short chapters. Some of them are even just one sentence um, with headings of, of different concepts. Some are one word concepts. Some are um, fun little um, sayings to live is to suffer. Uh, there's the time uh, marker in there, zero, zero, colon, zero, zero, colon, zero, zero, um, and all these different things. Now, what this does for me, um, or what this reminds me of, is a book of vignettes mm. rather than a book that stretches over one narrative arc. Um, I think it's more of a convention for a book of vignettes that way. Like, each of these is the title of a vignette, a short story, or a... Um, a brief essay and what i'm thinking about in those terms is could you isolate any given chapter read it without having read the rest of the book and by and large understand the concept does it stand alone um that is a really interesting question did I, you try it have you tried it uh just briefly with like a couple of these sure. um like uh, on page 134 there's a short one called island um and it, it's almost entirely internal. Yeah. Um, it, it's just how she's, how Nora uh, is perceiving her surroundings um, and everything that's going on. And it, it, it does stand alone in almost a prose poem sort of way. Um, yeah. Um, I guess like one thing that, I would be interested in, um, well, okay, two things. One, hopefully very brief. Uh, when you use the term vignettes, uh, in a very technical sense, I have, uh, in my background, always understood, yeah. or always been taught, rather, that a vignette specifically is a piece of prose that doesn't have a story. So, like, a vignette and a short story are yes. two different things in that a vignette is more like a snapshot. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Which, of course, overlaps it very closely with, like, a prose poem. And if we right. really wanted to, we could probably get into the weeds and have a debate about whether a vignette versus a prose poem <laughs> are, in fact, two different things. And that's, like, a discussion that would only be interesting to seven people, and I'm not even sure two of them are on this call. <laughs> um <laughs> So, but that said, like, I'm not just bringing that up to be pedantic, but also because, like, if it is a vignette versus a very short story, that subtly shifts, like, the idea that you've brought up here. Um, if this is truly, in the technical sense, a series of vignettes, it almost militates against the novel as a whole having a story. Whereas, if you call it a, right. a series of short stories... Um, that almost could go in any order. Um, that's almost 
I, I, I was going to say that's more interesting to me. Both of these ideas are interesting to me, and I don't think either of them... I don't want to, like, dismiss either of them. Um, I think the second thing has more room to explore and or or maybe even just to speculate in the sense that, like... Uh, if you've ever seen Pulp Fiction, right? Like, um... Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Uh, the structure, the story structure of Pulp Fiction is very fragmented. Um, stuff that happens at mm-hmm. the... Towards the beginning of the movie happens towards the end of, like, the chronology, if you sort of laid it all out in, in a internally consistent, you know, this happened, then this happened order. Um, and supposedly... Uh, I, I just heard this. I, I haven't verified it. It could be, you know, one of these like urban legends or something, but supposedly what Tarantino did when he had shot Pulp Fiction, and it was time to edit is he just took all of the, all of the film, all of the sequences and just sort of chopped them up into discrete sequences and like rearranged them somewhat randomly. And then just like ran them together mm. to like see how they worked in a particular order and just kept doing that until he was, please basically um that's right and like when when you were talking just now it almost made me wonder uh what would happen and again it may be a terrible idea but like what would happen if you uh you know we we can explore further if you if if you wanted want to like the idea of reading these things Mm. as isolated individual vignettes or or whatever um but yeah. it also made me wonder what would happen if you just sort of, you know, took each individual page or each individual section, however many, you know, one to a few pages it is, and did the same thing with them. Mm. If you rearranged them, would it, you know, make any difference? Um, sure. Well, here, here's here's what I, I, I think about this. Um, so um, I, you're right about the, the idea of vignettes, you know, that they're short stories without plot is kind of the, the shorthand that I learned in high school right. about them. Um, and I learned them in the context of reading the house on mango street. I don't know if that uh, is the same for you or anything like that, but that was the, the text assigned and it was like, this is a vignette. Interesting. Um, but uh, what I think, and this isn't anything that I was taught necessarily, but as I'm considering this in terms of vignettes, I think the story of the vignette really happens in the mind of the mm. observer. Um, and that's, that's that where the narrative comes in for, for a vignette. And it, I, I think it's similar to a, a, a poem in that way. It comes out of the contemplation of this thing. Um, and, I, I would suggest that with maybe a few exceptions, there's not a huge or really an important story in most of these vignettish chapters. Um, that part of the smoothness is kind of a lack of plot, a lack of conflict it's really just we're exploring this we're investigating this we're trying this one out fitting this one on and that's where the observer experiencing the plot isn't just the reader it's nora because she is the observer of each of these vignettes while also being a character um which i think uh 
I, I don't know that those terms are necessarily ever there, but it does, I think, tie right into the text because it's not the first thing I actually wrote in the margins of this text, um, besides the connected to the epigraphs, but it's the second thing I wrote. Would you like to know the second thing I wrote in the margins I mean, of, of this book, Ethan? It's on okay. page five. And this is... And I hope you're proud of me. I'll entirely um, depend on because... uh, the manner of your return. I mean, what you read me next. Uh, the the second and third paragraphs, which are really just the, the, the two sentences there. Not not the, the entire third paragraph, but the two sentences. The second paragraph and the first sentence of the third paragraph. Someone, for whatever particular reason, for or excuse me, for whatever peculiar reason, rang her doorbell. She wondered for a moment if she shouldn't get the door at all. And I wrote in the margin, meaning the door remains the whatever. And uh, um, makes it unreal. Um, and then under that, I wrote a dash and I wrote Schrodinger's cat. Yep. Um, and that's before... Um, <laughs> On the next page, you hear mention right. of a cat. <laughs> and um, then you hear down towards the bottom of that page, I'm afraid right. I think he's dead. Not right. he's dead. I'm afraid I think right. he's dead. Which, And I think, if I recall correctly, and this is me being an observer of my own memories, um... I think it becomes explicit later in the book. That yeah, a I was cat. I was going to ask you. There's a cat in a box because I thought there was, but I couldn't remember if it was uh, in this book or in any of like fifty percent of the other like at all speculative fiction adjacent literature that I've ever read where Schrodinger's cat came. I just was like, it's been a couple weeks since I read this, and I was I was trying to remember. Um, sure. Now, how does how does the Schrodinger's cat idea tie into talking about like vignettes? <clears throat> okay, okay. I Stick with make me no here. promises. Um, so <laughs> thinking about vignettes as stories without plot, except the story is in the mind of the observer. <coughs> Excuse me. They have to be observed for the story to be existing, for it to exist. And this is a thing that recurs throughout as well, that as Nora goes into these various um, lives themselves, each a vignette or a sequence of vignettes, some of them are longer and, and bigger, um, she is observing them and experiencing a story that then when she leaves it becomes eliminated. She, right. she can't go back into that. Um, because she has resolved something. She has effectively killed that life for herself. So it is dead now after observation. Um, and uh, she's she's resolved her regrets in that way. Um, driving to what is the ultimate point and purpose of this book, which relates also to um, what we brought up in uh, the multiverse special, um, right. the story by David Gerald. Uh, the whole point is don't worry about all the what ifs. Um, 
all all the the regrets and and all of those things but live in in this life and acknowledge the potential of this present life and that's um looking at the the very first chapter that conversation about rain um where this is 19 years before nora decided to die she's playing chess with mrs elm who winds up being her spirit guide later um and she's complaining this whole time but mrs elm is trying to get her to realize her own potential her own possibility and nora thinks that she's acknowledging that possibility by looking at all of these closed boxes but really all of those closed boxes of her past are dead cats and she opens them they seem to be alive but then they're dead and she they they die but the, the one that is alive is the one that she is in and that is the one that has potential moving forward so I think the very structure of this in having these vignettes with that idea that there's no story here, um, there's no potential, there's nowhere to go, right. really, um, drives back again to that central point that the root life is the life. Sure. Uh, I guess I'm I'm still missing the, the point where, like, the vignette... Uh... Uh, mm. idea comes in. Okay. Sure. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm I'm conceptualizing the vignettes as the the boxes that um really sure. only have story when observed. Um, and that requires the the reader to to see it and contemplate it, and so it's in reflection that the the story occurs. Not sure. in the actual reading. If that makes sense. I don't um, know if that makes sense. No, it, it <laughs> does. I guess my further question, and it's not necessarily to problematize what you've just said, though maybe sure. it might, I don't know, um, is, like, how is that, or e- indeed is that different, um, maybe it's just not, from like how all books always work like (laughs) in a sense you know um any book could be described that way like the the idea that uh uh you know a book needs a reader um a book like okay uh uh a book like the story of a book sort of doesn't exist until someone uh uh observes it or reads it or whatever like the the most obvious like i don't know if i want to say surface level but maybe just obvious um uh response that i could see and maybe this is your first thought or maybe you have something completely different but um the obvious one to me is like yeah that's true about all books but this book is going out of its way to like point up that fact yes i i think i think that's that's part of it um it in terms of the the vignette idea and i don't want to like evangelize this idea that i'm having too hard because it's it's just an idea um (laughs) 
but uh is so like it with a with a story with a, a traditional plot um take the the hobbit example you know they go they have to go and they fight a dragon and so like you've got that concrete external plot there um even with the internal plot right of the the character development or or what have you um now this book as a whole has that internal plot um the external plot um is is maybe a little more subdued in comparison to the internal plot and that really keys, I think, into this idea about the, the vignettes themselves that have no external plot and no internal plot. Um, the only plot is what is thought of by by the sure. reader. And and I guess, like, the plot that they... You could argue that they have a plot in terms of their context within the book. Like... The, mm-hmm. A lot of because and I, and I'm right. The, so, the more that you expand on this, the more I am comfortable using the term vignettes for a lot of these chapters. Um, the chapters yeah. themselves, and it might not be for all of them. I mean, but, certainly yeah. not for all. Like I was uh, just scrolling past a, uh, or scrolling past. Here we go. Um, you know, uh, page one thirty. A moment, moment of extreme crisis in the middle of nowhere, and it's just one line of Nora whispering a an expletive to herself into the cold and it's like yeah you right. know you you if you really wanted to abstract it out and, and be real like art school about it or something like you could kind of argue that this could be like its own little prose poem or something especially with that title kind of kind of does evoke something and does a lot of lifting there but like you know there are chapters right. and that's a funny one where the title is longer than right, the chapter which too. is you know clearly <laughs> among it, it is great and among you know other things it's clearly the author having a laugh um but oh yes so yeah you know it, it certainly doesn't work for all well, of the, the chapters at least not smoothly but to the ones right. that so here here here's kind of what what i what i was thinking about this is is the philosophy of sure. zeno um right who who you know like his philosophy which is like off the walls crazy but also like just makes you think um is that motion is impossible and like the example of shooting an arrow like the arrow never moves it's just a sequence of snapshots of the arrow moving and that's that's kind of how i'm conceptualizing this um even the fact that it all takes place in zero time right um that like there's no motion happening there's no arc happening except when you put all of these snapshots together, then you see... And I think Zeno's arc. philosophical argument works a lot better for your interpretation of this book than it does for, like, <laughs> an actual good reality. argument in actual reality. But, um, right. you know, I mean, Zeno, you're, you're absolutely right, and we're not, we don't need to get too far down this rabbit hole, but, like, Zeno is fascinating in the sense that, like, he says things that are so clearly wrong, but the farther you get into trying to prove them wrong, the more you're forced to think about them. Um, which, you know, probably exactly. a lot of people would argue is exactly the point. Um, and it's kind of what I was saying about certain, you know, certain of the books that, that we've read, uh, uh, Jacques the Fatalist, By Forts Alone. Um, this one, maybe to a certain extent, I could I could see 
in a different way than either of those other examples, but um, the idea that, like, well, uh, if you disagree with me, that's fine. I mean, you know, maybe maybe putting it, framing it in those argumentative terms is maybe not even, like, the right approach, but, um, you know, the idea that, like, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, to sell you on something or to, to drive home something. I just want you to think these ideas through. Um, though I would say mm-hmm. this book is probably a little bit more didactic than I would say probably most of the books that we've ended up bringing to this podcast. Um, and that's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing, but, uh, in some <laughs> ways it just reminded me of certain passages of lost in the cosmos, which is, uh, Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. You know, it, it's another book that's like, uh, uh, you know, using, the techniques of fiction to present an argument. And it's also another book that I would, that I would argue. Uh, it's, it's interesting because it's like lost in the cosmos. It's, it's clear that the author has specific opinions and, and, you know, uh, ideas mm-hmm. that he thinks are wrong and others that he thinks are right. But his technique in that book, I would argue is not to try to, didactically or argumentatively like force you into his same beliefs or into agreeing with him he's much more interested in presenting ideas um the the old there's a i want to say it gets attributed attributed to plato i don't know if it's you know if that's one of those internet attributions that's wildly wrong but the idea that the philosopher's job is not to um make people believe ideas it's to make ideas available um i get a a sense of Mm. that from you know both both lost in the cosmos and to some extent definitely this book um the i mean a couple lost in the cosmos connections occur to me uh the one obvious one is that lost in the cosmos in a way is structured very similarly to this book in just the, the fact that there's first of all no numbered chapters and second of all, a lot of Lost in the Cosmos is presented to you as very short vignette-like structures. Uh, you know, a, a vast majority yeah. of that book comes at you in like one to four page sections, I would say. There's some longer sections, but... Um, and then the other thing yeah. about Lost in the Cosmos uh, that that I did... This was a connection that my mind made almost immediately, and of course I've read Lost in the Cosmos five times, so... There's that, but um, this book mirrors, <coughs> in a in a novel length way, it mirrors um, what Lost in the Cosmos does, talking about suicide in just a few pages. Because one of the sections of Lost in the Cosmos, yeah. and I was trying to see if I had my copy close to hand. I don't seem to, so I'll have to paraphrase probably egregiously, but. Um, one of the sections of Lost in the Cosmos <laughs> deals with the idea of suicide, and um, you know it's a very it's a very direct you know some people might say even risky or irresponsible uh, uh, way of talking about it. But um, the the narrator, whoever you think that is of of Lost in the Cosmos, says, "Okay, if you're suicidal, like sit down, think it through, and do it. Like think about you know you've ended it, ended it all." Like, just put yourself in that space. 
And then, mm-hmm. you know, no, it's, it's like basically forcing you to know that that's a choice you can make. But then if you haven't made that choice, if you've decided, if you've pushed through that choice or something, um, then like go about your life in the manner of someone basically who has committed suicide in the sense that like they've take you've taken away all of the stakes and all of the pressures and all the stresses. Um, like you're someone who doesn't have to be alive. So you're free to take basically any of the risks and any of the, the, um, uh, ideas that, that yeah. you wanted to, that somehow you felt held back from, um, you know, before and like, yeah, it's it's really like a a three page recension of, um, sort of the overarching like theme or external plot of this book, such right. as it is, and to say that you know, yeah, in terms of of the themes of of this book, it's it's a restoring of the potential, right? Right, exactly. It's like, where where one who might be suicidal like Nora feels trapped like there's only one option right but that restores the potential for many options going forward exactly yeah um and i was going to say to say that like uh you know that this book is um or, or rather that Walkie per- Walker Percy does in 3 pages what this book does in uh uh, much longer is not necessarily to like insulted or anything like that. Um, <laughs> specifically because like, I think that's where a lot of the, the vignette like structure of this book comes in is that it's instead of doing it in a compressed way, like Walker Percy does, um, mm-hmm. it, this book is sort of expanding that. Like it's a, it's an impulse I've had with more than one section of, um, Lost in the Cosmos is the idea that, like, Percy in that book does a lot of things that, like, you know, he takes a few pages to do something that um, easily could be a novel in and of itself. And, like... That'd be an interesting exercise with that book is to find what novel exemplifies this chapter of this book. Yeah, I mean, that's that would be really interesting. I, I was saying that, like, I've had the thought of just taking small sections of that book and oh, writing sure. a novel myself based on based yeah, on that yeah. but yeah i think it i think it definitely works either way mm-hmm. um yeah uh i had another thought about oh i so i guess like i have some other thoughts but we're starting to approach the end of our time here on this first episode and um sure uh, I, I i don't want to bring something up that's oh. any too long of a discussion go ahead well I, I found a page that at least proves that schrodinger's cat was on uh, matt haig's mind when he wrote it sure that's page 231 um the end of the second to last paragraph uh, where she's contemplating the her husband in this this life, right? Um, she's she calls him a man she simultaneously slept with every night and also hadn't ever slept with, Schrodinger's husband, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah, and as I remember, you know that that kind of imagery recurs um, throughout this book. I think that um, 
you know, Schrodinger's cat has penetrated sort of the um, popular consciousness uh, to enough of an extent at this point that um, Matt Haig maybe felt the need to, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, like felt the need to be slightly cleverer in his references and his descriptions because it's like, you know, when a concept is new, you maybe have to go out of your way to include some kind of exposition to um, right. uh, explain it. But, you know, at this point, Schrodinger's cat is, is sort of at a place where, you know, you can just, for example, say Schrodinger's husband without having dropped that context earlier into a, a book. And right. enough people will get it that, you know, you maybe feel clunky kind of explaining it uh, more yeah. explicitly. Right, and it, it would be unnecessary too. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Now I had one more thought. Okay, I just like, uh, and again, this is I'm not trying to like harp too much on the vignettes idea, but I think this is a question that we can maybe yeah. knock out just in these last few minutes. Um, having sort of discussed this idea and, and picked it apart somewhat, um. Do you think, or possibly a better phrasing would be, how much do you think certain chapters of this book, or indeed most or all of the chapters, say we're leaving out the very beginning and the very end, like the middle 80% sure. of this book, how much rearranging of the chapters do you think could be done while mm. leaving it the same book? I guess, like, that was my main question at first when you were talking about vignettes, is the idea that, like, yeah, these chapters work fine on their own, but are they building in some way, or are they truly just like, you know, they could almost, almost go anywhere? Yeah, that's that's interesting, and it's certainly a thought that I I had even while reading, because there are certain lives that Nora explores that fit precisely in the arc of the novel itself. Um, like when she goes to Iceland or um, when she uh, is ha has that experience with Schrodinger's husband and, and right. lives that life where she's got the family and everything. Those are, are fit very in very precise places or, or the one where she's the, the Olympian. Right. Um, uh, and and uh, motivational speaking and, and all of that. Um, there, there are certain lives that fit precisely in certain places, but then there's a, a certain point at which she she even elides some of it, where she like she gives this list of I was this and this and this and this and this right. um, that comes a little bit later in, in the book, um, and then there are examples where she explores some of of the lives like that that I think those could be rearranged i think there are some bigger ones that need to be the signposts sure um though with her experiences with them even to say that like but then there are several that could could be rearranged yeah. to some extent I, I, though yeah, i mean even some of the ones that are like once she starts alighting them I, I i'd like to say she starts doing that at the point within the greater text where it's like okay the reader gets it like you you kind of cycle yeah. through all these lives like you couldn't take obviously we can argue about like rewriting or or something but like mm -hmm. you couldn't take that passage as it's written and put it like first because 
um, there's a certain momentum that has to be built up to, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do wonder, and like some of this, you and... know, you, you'd think about it in sequences, like not necessarily individual little chapters or chapterlets, whatever you want to call it, but like the sequence yeah. where she's an Olympic, Olympic swimmer or, you know, various other things like that. Could you... Or the one where she's in Australia. Yeah. Like, to what extent could you rearrange that? Because, like, you know, often when we talk about, like, nonlinear narratives, like, the concept of linear... Yeah. Linearity? I, that can't be the word. Linearity. Um, the concept of linearness um, mm. is <laughs> sort of being imposed on the world of the story. Linearosity. Story. Uh right mm-hmm. you're you're when you say linear yes you're saying like well, the the way that time passes within the story and when a narrative is non-linear it's that the story is presented to us the reader or the viewer if it's a movie or whatever out of yeah. order of the time in which it's presented within the world of the, or the time in which it happens rather in the world of the story um but so, yeah. To some extent, it like begs a question here that's an interesting structural question of like, do you do nonlinearness or can you do nonlinearness in a story that takes place like in sort of a pocket dimension where time literally isn't passing or is passing at a different <laughs> rate, right? Sure. Um, and, yeah. you know, if, if the answer to that is no, maybe that would be too confusing, then it's like, it almost militates toward a much smoother, like more... A, a presentation that yeah. feels more linear. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it would make Here. any sense to like, once her interior arc has gotten to a certain point, like I think it would be jarring and confusing to like, then flash back to earlier in the narrative where she was still more jaded or more done with yeah. life or whatever. Well, and and that's that's keying into um, when when I think about these as as vignettes, I think some of them are more vignettes for us um, than others are, and then I think all of them, uh, or most of them anyway. I I'm I'm maybe half thinking of of some that aren't, but I think most are vignettes for Nora. Sure. So for us as the reader, if you take Nora out or make us Nora. Um, they are vignettes, uh, which, which like that, that raises an interesting question too about, and maybe it's not so interesting about like any book again, like if you take the main character out of any story, does that make it the story of vignette? <laughs> um, so, uh, but, but it, 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 the point I think is that it's a, a vignette is presented to you like a painting. It's meant to just be observed and taken in, um, and that's that's how Nora experiences her her lives. Um, she she observes them and she takes them in and investigates whether they're worth right. her time. Um, and uh, then she walks away and goes to another one. Um, so for Nora, they are all vignettes. For us, many of right. them are vignettes. And seeing through Nora's eyes, we can see. All, all of these various vignettes. Um, and so with that point and Nora herself being imposed on it, she forces them to be into a certain right. structure. Um, like you were saying that it would be weird to jump back to a time where she's, 
she hasn't learned this lesson. Yeah, or, I mean, or maybe all lesson. all that we're discovering is that like the book, it's the story itself is structured, um, in a way that follows her internal arc more than it does anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, on that note, I think we're right about at the edge of our time, unless there's anything. Uh, any last thoughts you feel a desperate need to include, Michael? Nope. All right. Uh, with that, uh, gentle listener, thank you for listening. Um, we, uh, no one lost this episode, so mm. um, that's, uh, you know, that's one out of four. Um, we don't need to do any ratings. We will do some ratings uh, uh, next time. Um, so, uh, join us next time as we will continue to discuss The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Um, and in the meantime, contact us, please feel free. We're so lonely. We're so alone. Um, <laughs> you can do that in the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Uh, feel free to put Scotch Talk in the subject line. We are at Room with Scotch on twitter so long as that keeps yeah. being a thing um and we have uh, we will do your homework we don't promise to do it well or right um but we do promise to do it funny um <laughs> and you can find a form to submit your homework past present future i guess to whatever future? that makes sense <laughs> um you can do that at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Uh, listen to our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, including Intermission, our uh, audio drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, our uh, uh, Fiasco tabletop improv RPG podcast. Uh, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, maybe the most natural um, overlap with uh, people who like what we do here. Uh, this show involves um three grown men talking about a children's novel series written a hundred years ago um <laughs> as we record this which should be shortly before it it drops uh we have a pretty recent new episode um mm -hmm. came out i think over sort of the christmas holiday so if you haven't heard that uh go ahead and do that um and then there is Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG podcast. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Michael, anything you want You want the gentle listener to know? Anything you're promoting? Anything anywhere you want them to find you? Um, no. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, same for me. <laughs> that's it. Uh, just, just on Tapestry. That's it. Yeah. Find me there. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Um, that said, uh, just remember, uh, until next time, it is and or is not our party, and we will cry or not cry if we want or don't want to. <laughs> okay, thanks, bye! Bye. Obscurantism and Obfuscation, 
orally observed gentle listener gentle listener gentle listener gentle listener obviated objects of oblivion obambulating about offered unto you offered unto you offered unto you in the tapestry radio network tapestryradio.org from our fancy to yours, to yours.